Today, I'm just going to go right after some, uh, some core teaching. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm a classic over-explainer of the text. Um, and maybe you know that about me, too. And uh, um, so today, I'm going to try and, and keep things really simple from a textual perspective, but then just really dive down deep into the application of that and what that means for us and how it is that uh, God's calling us to, uh, to think differently. Right? So today is about thinking. Everybody got that? If you didn't come today to have your mind changed by the Holy Spirit, not by me, um, except as God leads, but through the Holy Spirit, then I would encourage you right now to turn that piece of you on, right? So turn your brain on, put your thinking cap on, uh, whatever that might be. We're going to deal with a few big words today, and that's all right. Um, We're going to deal with some core concept of definitions of what it means for us to tick and how it is that God wants us to engage and think with him about about who we are. Sound good? Sound like a fun Mother's Day? (laughs) Kierkegaard 101, right? All right, so uh, you can take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 16, please. So I want to get to the text this morning, and uh, I want to take the long way to get there. Um, so I'm going to start by, uh, I want to talk about two paradigms, right? Where a paradigm is just a structure. It's a way to think about a concept. Um, so the first thing that, uh, the first paradigm I want to talk about is the concept of culture and, and how culture is formed. Um, so you can think about culture, and uh, this comes from Keith Yoder, who, who you all know. Keith taught me this a long time ago, and it's become a really foundational, um, formational way of thinking about how uh, we do what we do. And teaching the word, everything that we do runs through on some levels this filter, right? So um, at Teaching the Word, we're all about creating healthier leadership cultures. And so we always go into it thinking through this grid. So you can think about culture in this way. This is the way that a culture is formed. And I'll give you an example um, to start off with. Maybe I've given this example before. Um, If so, I apologize, but only a little bit because it's the perfect example. Um, So uh, a few years ago, I helped out a church um, that was in the middle of a church split, massive conflict. Um, And the reason they were splitting was because uh, this church was about 150 years old, and from, for most of that 150 years, they had used a certain red hymnal. Um, and uh, this red hymnal was about, it was real thick. It was, like, it was like 600 pages thick. Actually, I grew up in a church that had a red hymnal, like 900 pages thick. It's how Baptists roll. And, uh, um, now, but of that 600, they only sang like maybe 80 of those songs. And um, so at some point, uh, the leadership team was like, well, this is, the books were falling apart, you know, but their great, 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 great grandparents used these red hymnals, and so, so they never, but at some point, the leadership team was like, let's get new hymnals, let's get ones that, have, that we're familiar with, but maybe that have some new songs that we're, that we're not familiar with, and this was your classic worship war thing, where like, that had praise songs in them, and uh, so they bought a new blue hymnal that was only about 200 pages long, uh, uh, and it also had like scripture readings and some of these contemporary things in them. Um, and, and this caused just a massive rift in the congregation um, to the point that, um, I mean, congregational business meetings were becoming shouting matches. Um, people were leaving the church in droves. This church of about 400 um, in, a, in a month was whittled down to about 150 people. Um, now, those 350 people that left, no, 250 people that they don't teach math in seminary. Uh, those 250 people that left, they, they didn't actually leave. They were just manipulatively using their absence as a way to get their way. 
right? Waiting until the red pimples are put back in the pews and then they were going to come back. Um, and so we got the call, you know, to come and, and help this congregate. Can you come and help us? Uh, and so we, uh, we went into the, the, the situation and um, began to work through this grid because the red hymnals weren't about the red hymnals, right? So it's not about that. Um, there was a cultural problem. This church had a culture that was unhealthy, and it was because they were thinking wrongly about who they were. So culture is formed, and it's based off of uh, four concepts that are illustrated through these concentric circles. Um, the this, the uh, outermost uh, ring are, is artifacts, right? So the artifacts are what is seen. So in this church's context, um, are the, the red hymnal is, is an artifact. It, it's an expression of something. It's, it's a tactile, tangible, conceptual idea. It's a representation of something. What are some artifacts that we have at Cornerstone? Art, yes. Art is a major art effect at Cornerstone. What else? What's that? Music. All right, yeah, particularly our instruments, right? Our instruments would be artifacts. What else? The The what? The lion, yeah. The lion is an, is an artifact. What else? Okay, our concepts up here, the cross. Some, somebody said something else. All right, very good. The lights. Dennis is an artifact. <laughs> he is one of our older members. <laughs> oh. Baby boomers get up and leave. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. She's not a pastor anymore. She can say whatever she wants. <laughs> uh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, these, these, are, these are all artifacts. These are expressions of something that comes from a deeper place, though. Um, and so uh, uh, artifacts are produced from norms. All right? So, so uh, norms, another word for this would be behaviors. Um, so the, the way we act, produces what it is that we use or what it is that, that we can tangibly touch and what, what, what we're about. So a behavior here at Cornerstone, we'll take the, our instruments, you know, a behavior here is that, is that we sing, right? We, we sing and we move our bodies and, and we use our bodies in, in worship. And these are the things that lead us in, into that space of, of behavior. That, that's a norm that we engage. That norm is based off of a value, uh, right? So what's the value that drives worship at Cornerstone? First love for God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, we believe that God is, is worthy of praise. And we believe that God is, is wor- worthy of worship. And one of the ways, actually the primary way that the scripture talks about um, us engaging God in worship and praise is through singing, through music on some, some level. And there's lots of ways to do that, but by, by far, the one that we see being most uh, uh, most valued is the idea of like you you take this concept of worship and praise it produces the behavior of singing and of worshiping God with your body to music. The way that we do that is through the artifacts that we have here. We can go to other churches here in our town and we can see organs you know that have been that have cost tens of thousands of dollars and that are beautiful and people worship with. We can go over here to Church of Christ just one block away where they have no instruments at all. Um, and they sing everything a cappella. There are norms and values that are underneath that artifact. 
Um, But values are not the base point for who we are. Assumptions are the base point for who we are. So the, the beginning of culture is not your artifacts. The beginning of culture is your beliefs. Your, your assumptions are the most important thing about you. It's, it's the core. Your values come from your assumptions. Your behaviors come from your values. Your artifacts come from your, your behaviors. And so at this church, you know, the, the problem was not that the red hymnals were replaced with blue hymnals, nor was the problem that the church sang, that their behavior, nor was the problem that they had the value of worship through singing was good. Their assumption was that worship is about what I want. Their assumption was that worship is what connects me to my history. Their assumption was that, was that God is not the point of our worship. We are. And, and these are assumptions that got put into play without ever knowing that it happened. Right? Assumptions are, are generally and oftentimes unseen. This is why objectivity is so important in your life. And this is something that the business world understands better than anybody else. They call these people consultants. Come and look at us from the outside because we can't see our assumptions because we're in them all the time. Right? Churches need outside perspective. That's the ministry of the apostolic and prophetic. It, it, it's, it's, it's do you see this about yourselves? Marriages need this. Someone should be looking at your marriage. You as a person need this. Someone from outside of you should be looking at you. That's called discipleship or mentoring. These are basic things that we operate. Your family, you should have some kind of invited wisdom into how it is that you are living as a family or how your relationship, be it dating or marital or perspective, whatever it might be, like, like these are way, we don't see our assumptions. Our assumptions sneak up on us and they change without us knowing that they change. The story of our lives changes them. Mark Twain says this, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> our assumptions are some of the most core things about who we are, and we hold on to them just deeply, deeply, profoundly. Um, but we hold on to them through artifacts. And so if you come to my house and try and take my library away from me, you and I will have problems. Right? That, 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 that's an art. It's the, my, my library, my books, I would consider it the most valuable thing that I own from like a material possession standpoint. And I've worked on this library for 20, 30 years, you know, and it, it means so much. And I have it insured and, and I collect certain books and, you know, and, and because they speak, you know, you try and take those things away. And that, that, that's, that comes from some place deeper. It's not about the books. There's an assumption that's underlying those things. And it's those assumptions that are unseen. And when those things go unseen or unchecked or become unhealthy, it produces unhealthy values, produces unhealthy behavior, which leads to artifacts that are unhealthy. We call those things idols. So, and that's not just on an artifact level. That's just the most tangible level. Idols can exist in any of the four places. So that's one paradigm. Assumptions, beliefs. Here's another paradigm. This comes from our friend Andy Crouch, who wrote a great book called Culture Making. And in that book, he he challenges us to think about um, what it means for us to be Christians in the world is more than just like living a good life, that God actually causes us to be people who who make culture, Um, that culture is just the norms, behaviors, values, artifacts, and assumptions that, that we live and swim in. 
And you're going to leave here today and you're going to go out and you're going to engage all kinds of different artifacts and values and norms and behaviors and assumptions that are all out there. And yours are going to run into other people's. And there's this interchange that's going to go back and forth. And and how that thing plays itself out and how it works um, is is going to produce a number of different ways of thinking and of engaging your world. So the question is, is, who are you called to be in that place? Andy's point is you're called to make better culture. But we don't think like that initially because one of our gut responses generally and oftentimes is to condemn culture, right? is to condemn culture, to look at it from the outside and just go, you are bad. You know, you are bad. And, and, and we look at the world around us and bad culture and bad world, you know. I'm surprised at the number of sinners who are surprised that sinners sin. That's what sinners do. They sin. And with anyone here that's not a sinner, go ahead and cast the first stone, right? And so, like, condemnation of culture gets you nowhere but looking stupid. Secondly, critique. Critique. So we engage this on just a mind, like, let's get together and let's talk. And one of the kings of this was Francis Schaeffer, um, who uh, uh, was just a master critique of culture. Um, But even he, as his life went over the, the span of life, Um, of his life, and as he began to engage things, he began to see how critique fell short, that there had to be more than just a conversation. There had to be more than just a dialogue that took place with the culture around us, that there actually had to be relationship underneath it. This couldn't just be about two people getting together to argue. Debates weren't good enough. The zenith of the critique was the creation evolution debates of the 80s and 90s. Maybe you remember those. Um, where we just get two smart people in the room together and whoever's smarter that day wins and we can all leave there feeling better about ourselves, having critiqued the other person's position. The problem is, is that critique is just whoever you agree with, you feel good then. You know, and so we just choose our side and you choose your side and we live together. And, but there's not actually any kind of relational engagement that changes our world as a result of critique. Christians often copy culture. We often copy culture. What's the world got? Let's do that. Right, what's, what, what's around us? Let's do that. The world has rock music. We'll make Christian rock music. The world has T-shirts. We'll make Christian T-shirts. Right? The world does uh, um, um, welfare ministry. We'll do Christian welfare ministry. You know, So we just look around us and say, basically, like, what's out there? How can we copy that so that it becomes ours? So we copy culture. Andy's point, though, is that what God calls us to Um, is none of these three postures. Rather, he calls us to create better culture, um, to create something that is is better, that if these three postures are failing, the actual purpose of an image bearer who is God is to keep doing what Adam was given the charge to do at the beginning, which is to co-create with God. So what is God doing? What is God creating? And then we create that with him in our, our world around us. Right? So two paradigms. Assumptions, culture, And then this idea of we're called to create better culture. Everybody got that? Jeremiah 16. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, and concerning the mothers who bore them and the fathers who fathered them in this land. They shall die of deadly diseases. They shall not be lamented nor shall they be buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. They shall perish by the sword and by famine, and their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them, 
For I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Both great and small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried, and no one shall lament for them or cut himself off or make himself bald for them. No one shall break bread for the mourner to comfort him for the dead, nor shall anyone give him the cup of consolation to drink for his father or his mother. You shall not go into the house of feasting to sit with them to eat and drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will silence in this place before your eyes and in your days the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bride. And when you tell this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great evil against us? What is our iniquity? What is the sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have gone after other gods and have served and worshiped them and have forsaken me and have not kept my law, because you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, every one of, your fo- every one of you follows his stubborn, evil will, refusing to listen to me. Therefore, I will hurl you out of this land into a land that neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods day and night for I will show you no favor. We've been for a few weeks now talking about the concept of prophetic acts, things that the prophet is called to do as a tangible artifact, representation, through a behavior based on a value that God is expressing, expressing based on an assumption that comes from God's heart. God's assumption is that my people should follow me and not worship anything else. The value is I love my people by calling them to that because only with me can they truly experience love and full life. God's behavior is that my people are not following me and therefore I will judge them. And the artifact that he calls Jeremiah to as a result of that is to refrain from engaging the cultural norms around him. Let me do that again. All right, this is important. God's assumption God's assumption is that my people should worship me and they should follow me alone. That produces a value in the heart of God where he loves us by calling us and calling his people to himself because he knows that only with him and apart from idols can we truly experience the love, fullness, depth of joy and grace and goodness that he has for us. That produces a behavior in God of judging us or of separating us when we are not with him. So when we worship other gods and live that lesser life and love those lesser loves, God then operates in a behavioral way where he strikes against his people to draw us back to him in repentance. The artifact for that is a prophetic sign on the part of Jeremiah to pull back from the cultural norms around him. So what is happening out there, he pulls away from. And God calls Jeremiah, as you can see in chapter 16, away from the most basic things. And he calls Jeremiah away from the most basic, you don't even think about these things, particularly if you're a Jewish man. You know, today, these days, uh, in contemporary American culture, marriage is completely optional. You know, like if you want to get married, great. If you don't want to get married, great. No problem. You know, do whatever you want to do. If marriage is something that you're into, fantastic. If not, that's okay too. In Jeremiah's day, that's not the cultural norm. In Jeremiah's day, the way that you carry significance is, I mean, there is just an assumption that you will be married. 
you don't even think about it. No, no one asked a young Hebrew person, do you want to get married someday? Furthermore, you didn't date. Like your dad said to you as a daughter, this is who I've chosen for you. Won't this be fun? You know, but dad, I don't love him. Well, that's all right. He's a butcher and he makes a lot of money, right? Fiddler on the roof. But there's someone else I love. <laughs> who cares? All right, there's just an assumption that marriage is how it works. Marriage is how it works. And God calls Jeremiah away from that assumption. He calls Jeremiah away from that norm, away from that behavior, away from that artifact, away from that value, and says, do not engage this thing. Because it is representative of something that is off. He then talks about what's going to happen to the people. I'm going to judge them. They're going to die horrible deaths. And when, when people that are close to you die, how do you respond? You grieve, right? You're sad. This is an assumption. And, and, and like if Jake is grieving for someone, you know, I'm not going to just like stand off and be like, whatever, bro. Sorry that happened to you, but it's probably your own fault. However, that's exactly what Jeremiah is called to do. The cultural norm is that there's someone grieving, you grieve with them. Jeremiah is called back from that. The most basic assumption, like how offensive is that? How strange is that? How unpopular is Jeremiah going to be? As people are weeping over their children who are starving to death, and this is actually what we see in the book of Lamentations, and Jeremiah is standing off from that saying, this is something that you need to pay better attention to. There's something more going on here. Try telling a grieving parent there's something more going on here. I mean, if you're Jeremiah, you're sort of like, are you serious? Like, I honestly have to do this? <laughs> In Hebraic culture, when you grieve for someone who's died, you grieve for three months. And there's a day of the week that's set apart, generally Wednesday. And on that day is when you would actually, you would like, you would set up time to go and be with the family and visit. And this happens to this day, particularly in more Orthodox Jewish families. You would visit, you would engage. You know, we, we have funerals where in our mind, it's like, get this over with so I can start the grieving process. Or right, so I can stop the grieving process and move on with my life. No, this is three months of once a week, people coming over and you engaging what happened. You know, and, the, and them talking about their stories. And when they come, they always bring wine. Or, in my case, whiskey, please. Right? So you, you, you're always bringing this. You're always bringing wine, right? You're always bringing some kind of libate. This is called the cup of consolation. You're consoling them. What's a better friend oftentimes, you know, it, when, when grief is really bad than like, isn't there something, isn't there some luxury I can take part in that's not this grief? Well, sure, there's wine. So here's the cup of consolation. Right, so here we bring this. And what is Jeremiah called to? Do not go to visit. Step back from this assumption. Step back from this norm. Step back from these behaviors. These things have gotten twisted. These things have gotten uh, messed up. These things have gotten... Um, uh, People are not understanding what actually is happening in these things. So pull back from the cultural norms in order to be about what it is that God wants you to be. That was a four-minute explanation of the text. I'm not going to over-explain it. There's, it's, thank you, thank you. Yeah, transformation is happening. 
the beautiful point is that I, there's, I, like, I don't know what else to say about the text. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean, I, I, I did the Hebrew. I cross-referenced it to the New Testament, looked back and forth. Like, this, th- that, that's it. You're smart people. I'm a smart guy. Here we are together in this spot. Everybody got it? Good. Now let's apply this. Because I think the application point is something that we can really, really dive deep into. So let's take Jeremiah and let's ask ourselves the question, what is it that might be hidden on an assumption level that we don't see? What is it that God is actually calling us away from to see about ourselves so that the values, behaviors, and artifacts that we live in and produce and engage are based on an assumption that's actually his assumption and not ours. What false assumptions might be in play? I mean, I could talk about cultural norms till I'm blue in the face. You know, we, we, can, we, we can talk about ways and artifacts and values and behaviors that the church engages that maybe the church shouldn't engage. Um, and that would be fine. And if that's what you're into, great. I mean, have those discussions while you're sitting over your Mother's Day meal. Doesn't that sound fun? Um, however, I'd much prefer to go after an assumption um, because the assumptions are what produce the values, the norms, and uh, the artifacts. It, the assumption is the place that God is calling us to create something better, to actually pull this thing out and to do away with it and to see something better, fuller, and stronger than what it is that he has, uh, than what it is that we've been given, something that he has for us. And just like Jeremiah, I think that we're being called to something prophetic, where we're actually being called to take action in some level against this thing. And how you express that might be different than how I express that. Today, I'm expressing it in the prophetic act of teaching. Right? But that might not be how I express it tonight when I'm hanging out with my friends or tomorrow when I'm with my family or this week at work. However, the assumption, the unhealthy one, has to go. And we have to go to God and be like, so this is what got screwed up. What is it that we need to put in its place? What is your assumption? What is your belief that we need to engage in, in order to be who it is that you called us to be? so that our values, norms, and artifacts are in line with who you've called us to be. Does that make sense? All right, cool. So what I want to talk about today from an assumption perspective, I, there's a few of these we could go after, um, but in, in my opinion, um, this is the core one. You've heard me talk about this before. Um, I'm going to keep talking about it, and you're going to hear me talk about it again, uh, because this is just so, so intrusive. It's parasitic. In other words, it latches on to our belief system and then it sucks its life out of it and it twists it and forms it and makes it ugly and and not life-giving. And it twists God. And furthermore, I think, and I'm not over, this is not an overstatement, I think it is killing our children. Got your attention, (laughs) right? So happy Mother's Day. Our children are being killed. And it's spiritually killed. Like they're being spiritually made dead by this. Because what I want to talk about is uh, moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. Let's all say those three words together. Moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism was a phrase that was coined by Christian Smith 
um, who is a professor of uh, sociology at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, he wrote uh, just a, a fantastic book um, on, called Soul Searching, uh, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers. This was first published in 2005. Right? How many of us in this room were teenagers somewhere between 1995 and 2005? Okay, look around. Look around. Put your hands back up. You're, okay, good. Uh, thank you. How many of us in this room parented teenagers sometime between 1995 and 2005? Okay, that's everybody else. <laughs> uh, well, sort of, ish. Um, except for Dennis, who's just way old, you know. <laughs> So what Christian Smith uh, and, and his colleague, um, he co-authored the book with Melinda Lundquist Denton, um, what they did was they, they interviewed um, a bunch of teenagers between th- those years. This was, this was a lot of work on their part to find out just their basic conceptions of their religious experience. And, and it, this isn't just a Christian experience. So they interviewed Christian kids, but Christianity, Mormonism, Hindu, Buddhist, Jewish, you know, I mean, they just, they wanted this, what is the religious concept, what is the concept of God that people from teenagers, from whatever perspective uh, uh, might be coming religiously to this, how do they see God in that? And what they found was a common trend in all religious expression that they coined as moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism. Moral therapeutic deism says this. Now, um, this is from a uh, a synopsis, a summary, a write-up of the book. This was uh, published uh, somewhere. um, This is on Princeton's websites. Uh, Anyway, um, it's very readable. It's very engageable. Justin's going to put it on our Facebook page. We'll also send it out a a link in the Cornerstones communication this week by way of email. However, um, I want to engage some of Christian Smith's concepts here. And listen to these things. So if you just put your hand up, um, and my hand was up too, uh, you're in this paper. You're in this paper. Um, So moral therapeutic deism says this. Uh, It's a creed that exists in five statements. Number one, a God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on earth. Belief one. Assumption one. Assumption two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Assumption three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Assumption four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And assumption five, good people go to heaven when they die. And so those are the five tenets of uh, moral therapeutic deism. And then Dr. Smith goes on to sort of like tease at these things and pull it apart. Uh, first, moral therapeutic deism uh, is about inculcating a moralistic approach to life. It believes that central to living a good and happy life is being a good moral person. Uh, one teenager summed it up, summarized their entire moralistic worldview like this. Just don't be an asshole. That's all. All right? Another teenager said this, morals play a large part in religion. Morals are good if they're healthy for society. 
like Christianity, which is all I know, the values you get from like the Ten Commandments. I think every religion is important in its own respect. You know, if you're a Muslim, then Islam is the way for you. If you're Jewish, well, that's great too. If you're Christian, well, good for you. It's just whatever makes you feel good about you. Moral thera moralistic therapeutic deism is about providing therapeutic benefits to its adherents. So think about God as a therapist that you go to visit in their office, right? This is not a religion of repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living as a servant of a sovereign divine, of steadfastly saying one's prayers, of faithfully observing high and holy days, of building character through suffering, of basking in God's love and grace, of spending oneself in gratitude and love for the cause of social justice, etc. Rather, what appears to be the actual dominant religion for U.S. teenagers, again, this is 1995 to 05 when the book was published, what appears to be the actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. It is about obtaining subjective well-being, being able to resolve problems, and getting along amiably with other people. God is like someone who's always there for you. I don't know. It's like God is God. He's just like something that will always help you through whatever you're going through. When I became a Christian, I was just praying, and it helped me feel better. I guess for me, Judaism is more about how you live your life. Part of the guidelines are like how to live and I guess how to be happy with who you are because if you're out there helping someone, you're going to feel good about yourself, you know? Thus, service to others can be means to feeling good about oneself. When I pray, it makes me feel good afterward. I don't know. It just really helps me feel good. As long as one is happy, why bother with being able to talk about the belief content of one's faith? MTD, Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, is about belief in a particular kind of God. One who exists, created the world, and defines our general moral order, but not one who is particularly personally involved in our affairs, especially affairs in which we would prefer to not have God involved, like your sex life. For many teens, as with adults, God sometimes does get involved in people's lives, but usually only when they call upon him, which is when they have trouble or a problem or a bad feeling they want resolved. In this case, the deism here is revised from its classical 18th century version through this therapeutic concept, making the distant God selectively available for taking care of needs. So deism says, like, God's the great watchmaker. He made a great big watch called the universe. He wound it up. It started ticking, and he backed off, right? And just whatever's going to happen there happens there. I, I'm, all the natural laws are in place. Everything's in order, uh, You've got everything that, you, you know, you, you've got rational minds, so figure it out and make it happen. That, that's deism. This kind of deism says that God is off like this until you get into a spot that makes you unhappy and say, God, fix this for me. And then God, ooh, what can I do? And then fixes it, and you feel good, and then God's back. Right? God's, God's hands are back off, so it's this rubber band God. Uh, I believe there's a God so that sometimes when I'm in trouble or in danger, then I'll start thinking about him. But this God is not Trinitarian. He did not speak through the Torah or the prophets of Israel. This God was never resurrected from the dead and does not fill and transform people through anything like a Holy Spirit. This God is not demanding. He actually can't be since his job is to solve our problems and make people feel good. In short, God is something like a combination divine butler and cosmic therapist. He is always on call, takes care of any problems that arise, professionally helps his people to feel better about themselves, and does not become too personally involved in the process. 
God being distant does not directly verbally answer our prayers. Perhaps the worst the God of moralistic therapeutic deism can do is simply fail to provide his promised therapeutic blessings, in which case those who believe in him are entitled to be grumpy. Furthermore, we, Christian Smith is speaking here, furthermore, we are not suggesting that MTD is a religious faith limited to teenage adherents in the U.S., To the contrary, it seems, this is also a widespread popular faith among very, very many U.S. adults. They just didn't do a scientific data concept structure to engage that. But their observation is that these teenagers are getting this from their parents. Our religiously conventional adolescents seem to be merely absorbing and reflecting religiously what the adult world is routinely modeling for and inculcating in its youth. The most people, people who are most dangerously uh, victimized and set upon by moralistic therapeutic deism are high school students. So as we think about what it means for us to be parents and a church who engage a God who is true and who give it to our students in a way that is life-giving, if you have high schoolers or if you have high schoolers who are not yet high schoolers but who will be, Like you need to give yourself to thinking about this deeply. How will you walk with your children in a true expression of who God is? Uh, Like I said, many religions share this view. This is not just a Christian thing. Uh, This helps to explain the noticeable lack of religious. This is interesting, I think. This helps to explain the noticeable lack of religious conflict between teenagers of apparently different faiths. You ever thought of that? That's interesting. Right now, everybody gets along. Everybody is that stupid bumper sticker. Coexist. You know, sorry, I shouldn't have said stupid. Some of you might have that on your car. You're not stupid, and nor is your bumper sticker. That was rude. Um, but that, that idea of coexist, where it has all those different religious symbols that's that, that, that spell it out, you know, um, because like, if there's a faith that's objectively opposed to your faith, and we're talking about really big stakes, like abundant life. Shouldn't there be some conflict somewhere? But there's not. Everybody's getting along great. This helps to explain the noticeable lack of religious conflict between teenagers of apparently different faiths. For in fact, we suggest that many of them actually share the same religious faith, the religious faith of moral therapeutic deism. What is there to have conflict about when any God from any religion exists just to make sure you're a good person who feels good about yourself and who stays distant except when you want him around? All right, so think back to the concentric circles. Moral therapeutic deism functions to foster subjective well-being in its believers and to lubricate interpersonal relationships in the local public sphere. MTD exists with God's aid with God's aid to help people succeed in life, to make them feel good, and to help them get along with others. That's the assumption. Help them get along with others who otherwise are different in school, at work, on the team, and in routine other areas of life. Finally, to suggest that religion in the U.S. operates complexly and distinctly on different levels, however, does not mean those levels never interact with or influence each other. They do. Purely individual beliefs, for instance, are shaped in part by the teachings of organized religion, as well as horoscopes, advice columns, talk show hosts, and so on. 
American civil religion is affected both by religious, liberal religious activism and the religious right operating at the level of formal religious organization. The same observation about inner-level interaction and influence is also true of moralistic therapeutic deism. In other words, it's, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. But as reported in our book, Soul Searching, our conversations with ordinary teenagers around the country made the contrary clear to us that in most cases, teenage religion and spirituality in the U.S. are much better understood as largely reflecting the world of adult religion, especially parental religion, and are in strong continuity with it. Few teenagers today are rejecting or reacting against the adult religion into which they are being socialized. Did you get that? Do you you remember like your parents and grandparents talking about uncle so-and-so or brother so-and-so who went through that period of rebellion? Right, where they, where they walked away from the faith and it caused such a rift in families and they came back and everybody was... That's not happening anymore, widely. Kids are cool, you know? Like, church is just a cool part of what I do because it helps me be a good person. God helps me feel good about myself and he only gets involved when I want him to. Few teenagers today are rejecting or acting against the adult religion into which they're being socialized. Rather, most are living out their religious lives in very conventional and very accommodating ways to their parents. The religion and spirituality of most teenagers actually strike us as very powerfully reflecting the contours, priorities, expectations, and structures of the larger adult world into which adolescents are being socialized. In many ways, religion is simply happily absorbed by youth. Largely, one might say, by osmosis, as one 16-year-old white Catholic boy from Pennsylvania stated so well. Yeah, religion affects my life a lot, but you just don't really think about it that much. It just becomes natural, I guess, after a while. However, it appears that only a minority of U.S. teenagers are naturally absorbing by osmosis the traditional substantive content and character of the religious traditions to which they belong. For it appears to us, The most popular religious faith is moral therapeutic theism. It is colonizing historical religious traditions. We can say that we have come with some confidence to believe that a significant part of Christianity in the United States is actually only tenuously connected to actual historical Christian tradition, but has rather substantially morphed into Christianity's misbegotten step-cousin, Christian moralistic therapeutic theism. And in summation, their last paragraph, the language and therefore experience of trinity, holiness, sin, grace, justification, sanctification, church, Eucharist, heaven, hell, appear among most Christian teenagers in the U.S. at the very least to be being supplanted by the language of happiness, niceness, and an earned heavenly reward. It is not so much that Christianity in the U.S. is being secularized. Rather, pay attention, rather more subtly, either Christianity is at least degenerating into a pathetic version of itself or More significantly, Christianity is actively being colonized and displaced by a very different religious faith, that of moral therapeutic deism. I do think that this is the assumption that we are coming to the table with. I could not agree more with any of Dr. Smith's conclusions and I think that writing since 2005, including his second edition in 2010, is just simply reinforcing what it is that we see. I think those in this room with a discerning eye and an ear to hear and to see what it is that's happening can see this happening all around us. And this assumption is killing our kids. 
and we're giving it to them. So what is the prophetic act that God is calling us to, to rescue and deliver our kids from this? That might be best exposed if we think about what are some ways that we are giving it to them. And in my last six minutes, I want to offer you three, three, they don't teach math in seminary, uh, three uh, ways that I think that we are giving it to them. And it comes from three coined stock Christian phrases that I think are morally, therapeutically, deistic to their core. Right? You ready? Number one, whatever God wants. Whatever God wants. This is just sort of like a, you know, like I've got a thing, and here's the thing in front of me. Here's a situation or a, a point of concern. But, you know, in the long run, whatever God wants. Whatever God wants. Number two, God's got this. God's got this. So like, there's the situation is real. But, like, I, I don't need to get worked up about it or work that hard on it. Because in the long run, God's got this. You know, so, I mean, just real nuts and bolts. Like, I, I don't have the bolts in. We're like 10 to 15 grand behind. Ah, God's got this. God's got this. Well, maybe you've got it. Number three, just be faithful. Just be faithful. You know, we are just being faithful. We, 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 are, we, are, we are doing what we know to do. These three phrases, I think, line up specifically with moral therapeutic deism in these ways. Whatever God wants is moral, is the moralistic side of things. In other words, I, I'm, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to make the right choices. I'm going to be a, a good moral person. And then at that point, because I'm holding up my end of the bargain, like whatever God wants. Whatever God wants. Therapeutic. God's got this. If I can say that, if I can say, look, God's got this, you know, God's got that 10 to 15 grand, then I can just back off of that thing and feel good about myself. But what if God's calling me in faith to give toward that 10 to 15 grand in a way that I actually have to sacrifice and see my bank account lowered or something that I thought that I wanted not purchased so that I can give this direction when I don't feel so good anymore? So it's much easier for me to say God's got this than it is for me to sacrificially give. Deism, just be faithful. Just be faithful, like back off. We're just going to keep doing what we've done and be what we've been. And we're just going to be faithful. And, and God's got this. Because honestly, in the long run, I'm whatever God wants, right? I mean, you see how these three things work together? It's just like this vicious cocktail of vacuous nothingness that I think sounds okay on some level. And, and the thing about each statement is that there's like, there's a little bit of truth in each one. You know, like, God's got this. I mean, but Jay, isn't God sovereign? Of course God's sovereign. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just saying that to say God's got this completely takes you out of the picture. Because honestly, maybe you have it. Why do you think he gave you gifts? So God doesn't have those gifts anymore. You got those gifts. And I think we oftentimes say, God's got this. And God looks at us and says, no, I don't. I gave it away to you. you know, whatever God wants, 
whatever God wants. And that was what we say. We, know we look to God and we go, God, what, what, what do you want? I mean, read your scriptures. How many times has God looked back at his children and say, what do you want? But as long as we can make it whatever God wants, and not have to actually work toward an actualization of what it is that we know God's put within us and what it is that we want, like the transformation of Lebanon, what kind of sacrifice and time and engagement is that going to take? What's it going to mean for Lebanon High School and Cedar Crest High School and Anvil Corona High School and New Covenant Christian High School and Northern Lebanon High School and uh, Elko and any other ones that I might not? What's it going to mean for those high schools to not be places where kids just warmly coexist together, but where they can actually be a true version of themselves, believing what it is that they believe? I mean, you, you know, like whatever, whatever, whatever God wants. Whatever. That's what God wants. We know what God wants. We're absolutely clear on what God wants. He's got it for us. And so often we say, God, what do you want? God looks at us and says, what do you want? But whatever God wants pulls us back. And uh, Just be faithful. Just be faithful is just oftentimes usually an excuse for mediocrity. To be faithful. Reverse the words. Be faithful is to be full of faith. And faith that is not boldly acted on is not faith. And so we can say that we're just being faithful till we're blue in the, fa- till we're blue in the face. You know, we can, we can keep planting seeds. We can keep all the other phrases that we have with these things. Again, fine phrases, I guess. I'm just telling you, these things carry insidious, parasitic, moralistic, therapeutic, deistic concepts with them that are rooting themselves in our kids' head. And I can see this stuff in my kids. I can see this stuff in myself. I can see it in the generation ahead of me. And I think that this is an assumption that God is calling to look at deeply. To say, God, who are you really? Because a God who is a trinity, is, it, that's not a comfortable God. That's not, that's not a feel-good God, right? A God hanging on a cross, gasping for breath as he bleeds out for his people. What about us feels good about that? And we call it Good Friday. I, I mean, and, and, and rightly so. I'm just saying that the lack of tension is a problem. The fact that we can just go through our lives warmly, being cool with everybody everywhere, that's a problem. The church was never not meant to be resisted. To say it positively, the church should be always being resisted. And we're warmly existing in a comfortable swarm of, of, of vagueness and coexistence. And at what point does Jesus become a stumbling block that the church puts out for people to trip over? Like, when does that happen? When do we do that to our own kids? When do we put Christ out as the stumbling block that they must come to face with, right? To, to, to look at and go, what am I going to do with this Jesus? At what point does them just, because moral therapeutic deism can oftentimes be summed up as just simple parenting. We want our kids to be good and we want them to feel good. And we want them to know that God's out there when they need him. So at what point does how my kids feel and furthermore, how my kids behave actually get sacrificed to go after something deeper and fuller and stronger in who they are? At what point do I take God from the distant out there and bring him right down into dinner conversation and go, what is this actually going to mean for you? 
I think that God is calling us to look for these kinds of prophetic acts that push back against this assumption. And in the same way that Jeremiah was called in such strangely normative ways to pull back from that cultural norm because the assumptions in it were wrong, I believe God is calling us to prophetically do that. And I don't know what that prophetic act is for you. I don't know what it means for you to be about that. I'm not going to apply this to your life in that kind of a way. We can discern it together if you want. But the wonder of this situation and the awe-inspiring nature of it and the fact that it's now becoming generationally incubated in who we are, it just leads us back to this concept of what is the culture that we're swimming in and what does it mean for us to create something better. And the prophetic acts that God is calling us to, I think it, it is the creation of better culture where we're pushing back against the moral, therapeutic, deistic concepts that are all around us and that our kids are getting very, very comfortable with. And we're calling them to a true representation of a Trinitarian God, right? of, 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 of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived, died, was buried, rose again, and ascended. And that that means something. and that the work of the Holy Spirit is true, and the church is real, and the Eucharist matters. You know, and that as we take, we come together under like strong examination to say, what, where is my life in relation to who God truly and actually is? Which is what we're going to step toward now. You know, and as we move into this, I, I just want to be uh, clear which is that I don't have good answers. <laughs> um, prophetic ministry is so good at raising problems. <laughs> um, so prophetic teaching today, you know, we've got a problem and, and, and I don't have a good answer for us. I don't have an easy way out of this. I'm convinced that our normalistic, churchy ways of dealing with this are not solving the problem, but perhaps even furthering the problem. So what is God calling us to as cornerstone? I don't know that we have an answer to that today. Other than this answer, Jesus died and he was buried. He rose again. And this blood that we remember that was shed is the new covenant in him that is fully held together. And in this place of our moralistic, therapeutic, deistic leanings, and however that's come into us, and I confess that I've been this way, and I've confessed that I've led my kids to think this way, and I confess that my parents and their generation around them have, have thought this way, and God knows where that came from, for them. And in all of us together in this, this isn't about anything other than here we are a broken people who have a misshaped view of God. And there is one cornerstone that the church has that we can always look at and go, that is the prophetic act that is our starting point, and it's this table. It's Jesus and his work and the fact that he died for us so that our, our lack of answers in this spot, he, he took that. And the sin that's committed against you and the sin that you've committed against others in the name of moral therapeutic deism, he took that. It's been paid for. It's, it's gone. It's under. It's under the blood. It's, it's, been, it's been completely forever redeemed and washed away. So this call is not one to shame or guilt. 
it's one to truth and reality. Yeah, absolutely. But the stronger truth than reality is that Jesus covers all of our misplaced assumptions. Jesus covers our values that get misshapen because of our assumptions. Jesus' blood covers our behaviors and norms that get misshapen and wrongly used. Jesus covers and changes our artifacts that we cling to wrongly because this is not an artifact. This is the truth of life that is life and life more abundant. And as we take together, we take together with a deep prophetic declaration that Jesus has for us the fullness of who he is. And as we receive and walk in that, he will lead us in the way that we should go. And while that may not be easy, and we don't have any answers now, we do know this, we have him. And we have his spirit. And we have the father love of God. And it is that that we come to and remember as we partake together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the beauty and the wonder of Christ. And we thank you that you have called us to something more, fuller, deeper, bigger, stronger. We do not want to be people who are moral, therapeutic deists. We do not want to live in these ways, God. We want to know and see and be about who you are truly in your fullness. So as we remember you now, God, and your death, this is our central point. This is where we bring our brokenness. This is where we bring our misshapen thoughts. This is where we bring our moralistic, therapeutic deism, and we lay it down. And we say, we don't have anything. (laughs) We have nothing to bring to this, but we do have you. And so we come together in the oneness of covenant as the body of Christ and remember you and walk with you and we love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, One of our elders, um, Mike, uh, came up here with just, I think, some great insight that I wanted to share with you where um, he said uh, um, this was a good word and it brought truth out. Um, There needs to be some fuller and deeper conversation about the artifacts and the way that those um, both are created and what they are today. I mean, and I agree with him. He used the example of like gender, sexuality, um, um, how that's working in the world, that that's becoming artifactish. You know, um, there's things within our own Christian subculture that are artifactish in the way that we engage things, our programs, um, how we engage or don't engage our city. Um, how does the church think about mission as an artifact instead of a value? You know, um, I think he's really onto something there. And so uh, we're going to get some conversation to that. And I'd also encourage you to give some conversation to that as, as well. You have the Holy Spirit and you hear the voice of God. My, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. So be confident in what it is that God is revealing to you. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for your revelation and wisdom to us. We give ourselves to you again and look to be remade and recreated by you. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
because our God is a consuming fire. Amen. Amen.